with us today to explain what is happening in Britain and Europe, a man who wrote speeches for Margaret Thatcher and now lives in Budapest. John O'Sullivan on Uncommon Knowledge in Washington, D.C., now. The journalist and author John O'Sullivan has worked for the Times of London, correct? Yes. The Times of London, thank you, John. Wrote speeches for Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, edited the American magazine National Review, and now is Chairman, President, Director of the Danube Institute. President. President of the Danube Institute in Budapest, Hungary. John, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Brexit, first of all, a very basic primer. What is it? Brexit is shorthand for Britain exiting the European Union. All right. And this all, Brexit is also shorthand for a political event of, of two years ago now, a referendum Almost, in 2016? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, two years ago, a referendum um, in which the, the British people voted uh, essentially 52, 48 uh, percent to leave the European Union. Um, and because, of course, the, um, uh, the question on the paper didn't lay down explicitly what the European Union was. Uh, therefore, there are lots of arguments over which institutions it should leave. But fundamentally, it means leaving the European Union legally. It means no longer being subject to its rules and laws and regulations, no longer being part of a, of a free trade area, a customs union with a common tariff barrier, and various other things, and part of a regulatory apparatus as well. Right. Now, I'm going to stick with the basics of the history here, frankly, to refresh my own memory in this. There are a couple of events in the 60s and 70s. Britain tries to get in, and de Gaulle rejects British the British application for membership in the European Union. Is that correct? It is correct. And furthermore, de Gaulle did so with an explanation which many people who support Brexit now would completely agree with. Um, he said Britain was a different kind of country. It wasn't continental. It, it, it was a worldwide country. It had worldwide markets. It had colonies abroad, even though they were now independent. Nonetheless, we had special relationships with them. And it had supply lines economically that took British goods and British imports and exports from and to places on the other side of the world like Australia and New Zealand, Southern Africa, in a way that wasn't true for continental limited or based economies like Germany. And nevertheless, de Gaulle leaves the presidency of France in 1968 and in 73, have I got the date right? Prime Minister Heath goes into the European Union. The application is accepted, all the paperwork, the politics, and Britain joins the European Union in what year? Remind me, John. Um, it, it became a member in 73, I mean, yes. January the 1st. The, the decisions having been actually voted on in Parliament in 1972. And then there was a referendum in 75 when the Labour Party um, ran a, an election campaign promising a referendum. Uh, but Harold Wilson, quite a wily political operator, uh, managed, who didn't want to leave, managed to phrase it, run things in such a way that the government ended up recommending uh, staying within the European, uh, e European economic community as, as it, it then was. was. Then, yes. uh, and because the Conservatives obviously supported an action they'd already taken uh, of being in, um, the, the that particular referendum went very strongly in favour of remaining within the European All right, community. So what that establishes, I want to come back to this, but just to, to, 
to state it. By 1975, both a Tory government, the two big parties in Britain, the Conservative Party, known as the Tories, also known as the Tories, and the Labour Party, it's a Tory government that takes the country into the European Union, and by 1975, the Labour government has effectively ratified that decision. Mm. Then, of course, the people themselves ratify it in mm. a large referendum. But it becomes the consensus view right away, at least among the governing classes, that Britain ought to remain in the European Union. Is that fair? It, it, <coughs> it is fair, and I would say both parties, however, were divided. Um, the divisions on the right um, were not so evident then. I mean, there was a strong anti-marketeer. They were then called anti-marketeers if you didn't want to be in the common market. And uh, they were probably about 40 or 50 members of parliament, but they were representative of deep concerns within the Conservative Party in the country, which Edward Heath and the cabinet essentially overrode. Um, and um, the, the, the opposition in the 1975 referendum looked as though it was the two extremes uh, against the moderate centre, and I that's see. always a, a recipe for political defeat. Right. All right. This brings us then to your old boss and my hero, Margaret Thatcher. And Mrs. Thatcher, there's a complicated history there of her views on the European Union. Can you just sketch it in her view? And, and actually, if I may ask you to make a distinction between her views as prime minister and her views, she continues to give major speeches in which she mentions the European Union after stepping down as prime minister in those few years when she still had good health mm. and remained a major public figure. And it's my feeling, but you're going to fill me in, that her thinking changed or shifted or, or deepened so well, it, I should thinking. preface that by yeah. saying that the, there is a dispute about Mrs. Thatcher's final views. Uh, there are some people who are close to her um, who believe she would have supported uh, Britain's remaining a member of the EU on practical grounds. It's very difficult to get out. Um, we don't want to lose uh, uh, access to the European market and that kind of thing. Uh, I would say the majority of people close to her um, take the view that by the, by 19, um, by the time of her death, she had definitely decided to leave. And I would say you can see a clear trajectory mm -hmm. in her political career. She begins as someone who hasn't really thought a great deal about it. She was more concerned with other things. When she becomes party... She's in Parliament in 73 when, when or yes. 72 when the decisions are taken. Th that's right. But the bigger questions for her then were questions of economic policy. Yes, yes. And, um, and anyway, this was not a matter of great concern to her. But so she's the party leader in the, at the time of the referendum in 75, and she is what I would describe as an unenthusiastic supporter. Then as prime minister, she becomes increasingly skeptical of Britain's attachment to the EU, increasingly angry with the EU leaders and increasingly getting involved in rows about, we want our money back, we're giving too much to Europe and not getting back enough in return. Um, by the time that she has reached um, a few years before she, re she leaves office or is thrown out of office, um, Mrs. Thatcher... She serves from 79 to 91. Yes, and in, there's a famous moment in, 19, in 1990 
um, when she goes to the conference, uh, an EU summit in Rome. And a number of important events happen there, but essentially she's uh, sandbagged or ambushed, and the EU leaders begin to push through a much more federalist uh, set of ideas. She returns to the House of Commons. She makes it plain she's against uh, these political powers being surrendered um, by Parliament to the European um, Union, as it now is, I think, and, um, and there's a rebellion against her, led by Geoffrey Howe, um, of senior Conservatives. The party in the country was, I would say at that point, on her side, mm -hmm. but in Parliament it was still opposed, it was opposed to these moves which people were worried about, uh, thought them somehow dangerous. Uh, she lost office, and then in, in opposition, I'm sorry, I'm not in opposition, but in semi-retirement, yes. um, she voted against the future measures towards uh, of, of European unification, the Maastricht Treaty. In her book, Statecraft, and in her memoirs, she makes it plain she's increasingly skeptical. And by the end of her life, she has confided in letters and conversations to several people that she would now support leaving. And she makes remarks in some of her writings, particularly in Statecraft, which make that plain, that's the direction of her thought. So by the end of it, she's, an, she's someone who wants to get out, but she, has not, she is no longer the dominant figure she was, and anyway, she, in a sense, has the respect that most former prime ministers have for letting other people get on with it. So I, I want to get to the referendum, obviously I want to come up to today, but of course to the referendum mm -hmm. in 2016, but it's very striking to me as a layman, or is it on the other side of the Atlantic, all kinds of developments take place in post-war Britain that relatively, well, not quickly, but with the passage of time become granted. Mm -hmm. So the uh, Attlee government votes in the welfare state, centerpiece of that is the National Health Service. Mm -hmm. The most conservative person in parliament never says a word about, uh, I still object to the National Health Service. This is different. There were objections to going into the European Union and they never went away. Is that right? That is right. By the way, the National Health Service is perhaps an exception too, since as Nigel Lawson said, it's the closest thing, the thing the British have to a religion. Uh, and everybody goes along with it for that reason. But yes, you're correct. Um, I looked at the opinion polls from 1976 right up to the referendum. And generally speaking, um, the uh, opposition to Britain's membership never fell below 30. Uh, occasionally it did. It, did. it was very often in the middle and high 40s. Once or twice, it was above 50%. And there was a steady movement in the last four or five years before the referendum to increasing skepticism and opposition. On account of what? What is the public? I want to get to the arguments in a moment, but what is the public? What are the politics of the matter? Why is the public shifting against the EU? Um, I think the British are different to the other Europeans in that they resent the degree of interference from European institutions in public life and they resent what they perceive to be, in my view correctly, a loss of independent democratic decision making in England. I think the basic argument for the, uh, for the, for the Leave side is to say, I was born and lived in self governing independent democracy and I want to live in one again. And it's as simple as that. It is it's as hard, simple as it's that. It's hard to suppose Mrs. Thatcher would have opposed that statement. Ah, but the point is, it, it, the, the, not only do some people um, oppose it uh, in the past, they oppose it now and they say 
this is just theology. Um, Britain is more prosperous as a member of the European Union, and we think that that's real power. Sovereignty is a trivial or it's a mythical thing. Um, you have more influence in the world as a member of a larger unit than you do as an independent one. And my reply to that is, well, I'd rather have a 100% decision making for Britain than one twenty-seventh of the decision making for Europe, particularly when our interests are misaligned with those of our European partners and we lose most of the serious contested disputes. Why did the government, the Tory government, we're now back to a Tory government, David Cameron is the Prime Minister, George Osborne is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. These are highly accomplished, intelligent people. And why did, who, both of whom opposed Brexit, wanted to stay in, they were Remainers, why did the government agree to put a second referendum to the British people? They didn't really have a great deal of choice. The uh, opposition to Britain's membership, as you and I just discussed was persistent and enduring and growing. Their own party was hostile and increasingly so and th they found themselves in the position that members of parliament said um, we will vote against the government on this issue unless you accommodate us and the obvious form of accommodation was to say look among ourselves, we think we'd win a referendum hands down. Why don't we give them one? And then that'll shut them up, at least for 40 years. And um, th that was, in a sense, what they decided to do. Now, I don't think they took the decision lightly, by the way, because there was a risk, which turned out to, to be yes. <laughs> a serious risk. Um, but nonetheless, they thought they'd win it, and they thought that otherwise the party would be torn in two. And that's why, for example, the, the, the Liberals and the Labour Party say this is an internal war in the Tory party and they're just dragging Britain into it. But it turned out that 52% of the British people uh, wanted right. to leave, so that undercut that argument. Right. All right. A couple of arguments against the referendum, as mm. I understand it. Item one, <clears throat> the, major the margin was too narrow. You can't take a decision that's binding on future generations that's so momentous and that overturns four decades of membership in an international organization on the say-so of 4% of people who happened to vote that day. Well, you might argue that, but you might equally better argue or better argue that uh, the, if you have run an election on the, on the promise, um, we, won't, um, uh, we will not enter the, enter the European Union. Our commitment is to negotiate no more, no less. And then uh, you negotiate, uh, you enter, and that's exactly what happened in 1970 and 73. In other words, the Tory party did not promise it wouldn't enter, it promised it would simply negotiate. And then without any referendum of any kind, it entered. And that is one of the reasons for the slumbering resentment that has tended this issue. And as it happens, um, why shouldn't the majority win that particular argument? You're saying that we shouldn't get out because um, uh, 50, only 52% say so. But on the other hand, why should we stay in because 48% say so? All right, John, what about the argument according to age? Younger people voted more favorably toward remaining. So the argument goes, if, you, if, we, if, Bre if Brexit is put into effect, it's because old people who after all will die off soon enough, will the, are, in charge, are, are forcing their children and grandchildren to leave a European Union to which they're actually attached. Well, there is a majority among um, young people um, for uh, remaining in. Um, 
And but on the other hand, in all other groups, I think certainly people over 35 until you die, um, there's a majority for leave. And um, the, by the way, the young people just didn't turn out in the referendum um, in, the, in the manner they did. But even so, let's not exaggerate this. It's essentially, um, whether you look at social class or age or anything else, um, the division is generally about two-thirds versus one-third. So if you say, um, look, highly educated people voted uh, to remain, well, one-third of them voted to leave. I so it, it's, we shouldn't over-exaggerate over this particular argument. But having said that, what democratic, the democratic principle is one man, one woman, one vote. And you can't simply say some votes are worth more. Than, all votes are equal, but some votes are more equal than others. I have to say, there have been moments watching the Brexit debate when I can't quite sort out what the Remain argument might be. Because this notion, lots of it, it, Michael Caine, the actor, yeah. was being interviewed about this. Yeah. And he asked, was asked about Brexit, and he re replied, I would rather be, and the argument was, well, if we leave Brexit, we lose yeah. trading arrangements, yeah. it may hurt the economy. Yeah. And Michael Caine replied, I'd rather be a poor free man than a rich slave. And of course, to every American, of course, sovereignty, national pride, patriotism. What is the argument against well, that's very interesting you Brexit. say that, because um, that's the, the argument of the Remainers was these people would never vote to leave if they knew it would cost them money. Ah. So, so the opinion polls then ask the question, supposing you were to be worse off as a result of leaving, would you still vote to leave? And the majority of people said yes. Well At right. which point they were mocked by the Remainers as fools who were, in a sense, getting nothing serious in return for, for losing some income. By the way, the loss in income, even if you take the Treasury arguments and others, is not that terribly great. It's rather like saying, you know, if you vote to leave, you'll be as poor, uh, poorly off as you were in 2015. Right. Well, you know, I mean, that's not right. all that right. serious. Uh, so, right. so I think that once you uh, examine the Remain arguments, they tend to fritter away. And, and the reason why, for example, some intellectuals, particularly economists, have been on the Remain camp is because they attach overriding importance to such questions as the marginal improvement in wages or whatever. Whereas other people look at what's happening to their country and say, this country is not the way I remember it. The police aren't as polite. Uh, there's far more disorder and riot. We're not as happy. Our street's different. We would like to be the way we were. Now, you can never return to what you were, but you can return to some aspects of it. Namely, we want to govern ourselves. Right. Now, John, that brings us to the present day, which I have to say the British politics at this point absolutely baffle me. This may re involve departing from Brexit for just a moment, but Jeremy Corbyn, well, let's put it this way. Back when I was studying in England, the Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and the leader of the opposition hmm. was, for all intents and purposes, a fellow traveler. He was a, Michael Foote. And, and the idea that the current leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, is by all accounts further to the left than the man who was leading the Labour Party in the late 70s and early 80s is just incredible. How could this have, am I, first of all, is that so? And how could it have happened? I think we should correct something on Michael Foote. 
Uh, Have I been Foote too hard was, on Michael Foote? Michael Foote was on the left, and the Sunday Times keeps trying to prove he was a Soviet agent. But he was an old-fashioned radical leftist. All right. uh, the heir of the left. Uh, and by the way, he uh, and Enoch Powell formed an alliance against going in the first time, and they both agreed. Well, you know, if, if, uh, if we have an election in this country and it elects a Labour government, then that's for the British people to decide, or a Conservative government. It's not for someone else to say, oh, look, you don't want that government in this country. We'll make sure that can't happen. And that's the, the other argument, which is sometimes used by Remainers. Um, I think it's a sinister argument, even if it's sort of dressed up in concern. Um, so, I, so I wronged Michael Foote. He wasn't involved yeah. in international conspiracies. He was a British man of the left, but still. Jeremy Corbyn, in my view, is a sinister clown, and there are other people who are sinister around him. I myself don't think he will ever be elected. Um, I don't believe that the Labour Party, under his leadership, will win an election because, for example, he, is, uh, he hosted Sinn Féin at the, uh, in, when, at the time when um, Sinn, Féin, Sinn Féin's ally, uh, uh, the IRA. In fact, they were the same people, um, you know, with their guns in the cloakroom. Right. Uh, and they um, they were blowing up uh, um, cities and killing people and shooting soldiers. So, I mean, that record is there, and I don't think he'll ever he'll ever win. But suppose he wins for the sake of uh, argument. In my view, what would then happen is that he would lose the next election. Would there be would they install a Stalinist dictatorship? Well, if he tries, I don't think he'll succeed. I think, as in America, I think there are um, enough safeguards against that kind of governmental excess um, um, to, to, um, to, to prevent that happening. I don't believe he, if he, he'll be elected, and if he is, I don't believe, believe he'll be re-elected. And so I'm relatively optimistic on that score, and I wouldn't be persuaded by uh, Mrs May or anyone else that if we didn't adopt her particular idea of how to leave Brexit, that we will get uh, Corbyn. I don't think we will. Now, Again, correct me on this, but if I understand it correctly, Prime Minister May, 18 months ago, invoked a certain legal clause in the European Union mm. documents, which is recognized by all 27 members as valid. Mm. And from the moment she invoked that, two years remain, remained mm. until Britain left the European mm. Union one way or the other. Mm. And that date of leaving is in March of 2019. We're now a single digit number of months away from leaving. Mm. The British government can't agree among its own members the terms it wishes, on which it wishes to leave, renegotiating this, that, and the other aspects of trade. Still less has, have the, have, has Britain been able to agree with European negotiators. How bad would it be if March 2019 arrived and there's simply no agreement and Britain simply, be, from one day to the next, we're no longer a member of the European Union, lost all the favored trade agreements and so forth. Crashed out, I think is the term. Oh, the other term is to leave on the rules, under the rules of the World Trade Organization. And this is the one occasion in which all of the globalists are suddenly unenthusiastic about international organizations and international rules. Now, of course, everybody accepts that there would be real um, uh, difficulties as a result of leaving uh, overnight, so to speak. Um, but the people I've spoken to all say that this is a transitional problem. It will last nine months, maybe a year. 
with goodwill, which, by the way, is mandated internationally under international law, all these problems can be overcome. But let's suppose they're not overcome because of ill will on the part of the European Union. Isn't that an argument for not wanting to be a member of a club whose members dislike you so much that they want to punish you for following the rules under which you leave, which is the rule you yes. described? So I think the, um, the argument is that we, can, uh, we, we want to govern ourselves. And the problem with Mrs May's uh, answer is she is conceding so many practical matters which will continue to be, uh, we would continue to obey the rules and regulations of the European Union that at a certain point you are not leaving at all. Um, you're remaining in, the one difference being that you remain uh, under the rules and regulations, but not being a member, you've lost the vote. You've lost the vote. All right, last question, John. March 2019, roughly speaking, what will be the terms under which Britain leaves? And on that day, who will be prime minister? Um, I don't know the answer to those questions because I'm, I can't foresee the future. Um, and, and the next few weeks may in fact determine the, la the last question. But I would say that um, by the time, if, if Britain doesn't leave on the date agreed, there will be enormous social ferment. And not only, so to speak, in the streets, but there'll be a ferment in uh, the Conservative Party. When you say if Britain doesn't leave, you mean if somehow or other the governing classes overrule the if, referendum. If Britain applies for an extension and is granted one, I that see. kind of thing. Yes, but that would be regarded as you just described it, as, as the establishment overruling what the people, the people had decided. And the, the, as, as in the United States, the conflict over populism and democracy and elitism are so strong at the moment that it would be a very reckless act on the part of supposedly cautious politicians if they decided to put Brexit into cold storage and deal with it down the road. And I find that hard to imagine that happening. If it does happen, I think there's going to be a massive change in both political parties. I would think a general election and in those circumstances, you cannot rule anything out except for, and even perhaps a Corbyn government. John O'Sullivan, thank you. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.